We've come to what is traditionally the end of the Lenten season, and if you've been with us at all this Lenten season, you'll know that we've been talking about uh, the unexpected Messiah, about how Jesus was the expected Messiah, but he came and did very unexpected things. He came in really unexpected ways. And I think the cross is really the climax of that story, because in the cross you see victory disguised as defeat. And you see love disguised as horror. And that's really what you see as you come to the cross each year. Kate Bowler said that right in the place of Jesus' deepest weakness, we see the beautiful, terrible cross show us pure and perfect love. And we just read about it in the kid's story. It wasn't the nails that held them there. It was love. So in the midst of this horror, we find the love of our Savior. I'm going to be reading from Luke uh, chapter 23, verses 44 to 49. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I don't know how much TV you watch. I uh, don't get a whole lot of chance to watch a whole lot of TV. And now, of course, it's a lot different than when I was a kid. They've all these streaming services and all the different things you got to keep track of. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in all these streaming services is a, is a proliferation of shows that go back in history and sort of fictionalize history. They take elements of history, they fictionalize it, and they make long series into it. So there's lots of shows about sort of Vikings and England and the battles that happen between these people groups and one kingdom fighting another kingdom and one kingdom rising up and another kingdom falling. And of course, that's not just true of television, it's, it's true of history. You look at history, it's just one seemingly endless cycle of one kingdom rising and one kingdom falling and kingdoms battling one another. Well, I want you to think about that image as you think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We don't always think about it in kingdom terms, but actually what happens at the crucifixion is a very powerful expression of the most powerful kingdom there is. Because at the cross, you get a clash of two kingdoms. You get a a clash of the kingdom of this world, which is best represented by the Romans in the story of the crucifixion. And that kingdom of this world is clashing with the kingdom of heaven, with Jesus at its head. But of course, this clash of kingdoms, at least in this story, looks a lot different than all the other ones we've ever seen before. Because this victory of the kingdom of heaven, let's face it. It looks a lot like defeat. It looks like a loss. Partially because this King Jesus who wins the day that day, this King Jesus wasn't wearing a gold crown and riding off into a great military victory. Instead, he was wearing a crown of thorns. 
To understand this kingdom of the world, we have to look a little bit about this sort of Roman system that contributed at least to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you know history at all, you know the Roman Empire is probably one of the most powerful empires known in human history, and people have studied it for for years and years and years. The area in which Jesus lived, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, that whole area had been conquered by the Romans about 80 years before Jesus was born. And so they'd been around for several decades at this point when Jesus shows up on the scene. But what we know from history and what we know from the scriptures is that when the Romans conquered someone, they allowed them to have a certain measure of authority and a certain measure of autonomy. And so you see that with the Jews. They have a certain measure of authority, but they ultimately have to defer to the Romans for the final say in things. And that's where you get Pontius Pilate into this story of the crucifixion. This point, a man named Tiberius was the emperor of the Roman Empire. As Caesar, he would demand total devotion from everyone in the empire. And even in certain instances, he would demand their worship. As part of the emperor cult, he would demand their worship. He would demand them to say that he was Lord. But what comes to the forefront here is the Roman form of execution that we know as crucifixion. Most people believe it was the Greeks that actually thought up this idea of crucifixion, but it was the Romans that eventually perfected this method of execution. And most people looking back say it is the most brutal form of execution ever devised by humanity. We would look back at that now and say it was a massive human rights violation to treat someone in such a way. It was intended to bring maximum humiliation, maximum suffering, and maximum pain. And the whole point of it was to send a message. What the Romans would do is they would crucify victims outside of the city gates. Of course, in Christ's story, we know he's on a hill called Golgotha. And they would, sacrifice, they would, they would crucify these victims outside of the city. So anybody entering into the city at a visitor would see on the road bodies hanging on crosses being fed upon by vultures, sometimes fed upon by dogs. It would take victims as many as three days at times to die from crucifixion. And most doctors have looked at it and said it was probably a mix of exhaustion and asphyxiation that would cause the death of someone who was crucified. Three days hanging outside of the city gates, naked, being mocked and jeered and spit upon. But in Jesus' case, it only took three hours. It only took three hours. See, everybody was in a rush. There was Passover that was about to come. There were all these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. It was on the eve of the Sabbath. And so they had to be quick about this. And so they gathered their crowd. They flogged Jesus mercilessly. They nailed him to a cross and watched as it only took three hours for him at the end to declare Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Of course, all of Jesus' followers were distraught by what had happened. They believed for years at this point that Jesus, as the Messiah, was about to bring the kingdom of heaven, was about to bring the kingdom of God to bear in their world. And each and every one of them was hoping that they would have a high position in this kingdom of heaven 
after Jesus came in might and power and dispatched the Romans. They were looking forward to having a high position in the kingdom. So you can imagine what their disappointment was as they see Jesus dead on a cross. The kingdom of this world felt like it had won. They they must have imagined that this kingdom of this world had once again beaten the kingdom of God, once again beaten the kingdom of heaven. But they thought that because they didn't remember. They didn't remember the words that Jesus had taught him, how he spoke very plainly to them about how this indeed was the way. This is exactly what was happening, and it was all a part of God's plan. But for them, it felt like they had lost. It felt like a failure. They had to imagine, yep, the kingdom of this world, it wins again. It gains mastery all over again. The evil systems of this world that we live in, that define the world they lived in, that seem to define the world we live in, yep, once again, those evil systems had gained the victory. But not everyone felt this way. Not everyone. There was one man that we read about in our passage, one man who saw exactly what was going on. And this man becomes an unlikely follower, not just an unlikely follower, but an unlikely worshiper of Jesus. Because in verse 47, we have a confession from a centurion. The centurion's confession. Listen to what he says. It says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. We don't know much about this centurion. We don't even get his name. He's unnamed. He's just a random centurion, right? But we know he worked for the Roman system, this Roman kingdom. Most likely his job was to oversee executions just like this one. And so likely he had witnessed execution after execution after execution, maybe seeing upwards of a hundred people lose their lives in this form. He'd seen countless criminals, maybe daily, taking their final breath. But when he looked up at Jesus on this cross, he knew this was different. This was different. Maybe it was the fact that the sky had turned black for several hours. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus, when he was on the cross, said nothing but essentially quoted scripture the whole time he was on the cross. Maybe it was because he refused to turn, return back all the hate that was being spewed towards him by the crowd. Maybe it was the fact that this centurion witnessed grace and the promise of paradise to a criminal that was crucified right alongside of Jesus. Maybe... It was because he heard Jesus utter these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Either way, the centurion saw the death of Jesus, and he concluded that this man was innocent, and he praised God as a result of it. He didn't praise Caesar as Lord, which was what he was trained to do and what was his job. He didn't feel any sort of sense of justice when a criminal is fairly being punished. He didn't see that at all. Instead, he praised God. Instead of all the the mocking and the spitting which is happening all around Jesus, he looks at Jesus' eyes and he sees what is true and he worships him. 
One commentator said, the empire has now testified against itself. Luke tells the story. Uh, Mark also tells the story. But whenever Luke tells a story uh, all throughout his gospel, what he always does consistently is he always records people's responses to either things Jesus taught, things Jesus said, um, uh, miracles that he performed. Luke always wants us to know how different people responded to Jesus because he always wants to present to us the question, how will you respond to Jesus? This is what Jesus did. This is how people responded. How will you respond to Jesus? Well, in this passage, we see a few of Jesus' acquaintances, some of his female followers. They're captured by all sorts of sadness. They're standing away at a distance. They're watching this spectacle, and the horror of it plays out in front of them. Jesus, or Luke also tells us about a crowd. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They were sad. They were mournful. There was no comfort in what they had seen. He was just another criminal who had met his end. But then Luke presents to us this dear centurion, the one who walked away with an actual and correct picture of who Jesus was, and he walked away praising God. You see, this wasn't a defeat. Instead, it was a great victory dressed up as a defeat. It was a great victory disguised as a defeat. You see, the kingdom of this world had not really won. Instead, Jesus had gained the victory But it was a different sort of victory than anybody expected. It was a victory over sin. See, the truth is, long before the Romans, sin was, and it continues to be, humanity's greatest oppressor. It controls us. It condemns us. It alienates us from God and from other people. And it leaves us helpless to save ourselves. What the gospel tells us is that is exactly why Jesus came. It's why he allowed all these series of events to take place at the end of his life. He did it so that the great oppressor, the great oppressor of sin, could be taken care of once and for all. And so, friends, as you stare at the cross this Good Friday, as we do each year, as you behold the nails and the thorns, as you see the spear and the blood and the scars, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you respond in fear as so many did? Will you keep your distance safely as so many people did? Will you walk away sad and mournful saying, well, that's just a really sad story? Or will you see the victory that stands behind this defeat? Will you walk away Or will you praise God? Let's pray.